you can smell it, you can taste it. When you speak to the producer, you say, where do you source from? Um, you know, and when you scale back to, to where it actually comes from, it, it's like anything, you know, you taste good quality. You can taste it, the sweetness, the, the smell, the, the texture. People aren't stupid now. I think the customer, they know good quality. They, they, they see it. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Our perception of quality in a hospitality sense has changed a lot over the years. Traditionally, fine dining was always spoken of as quality, and cafes and casual dining restaurants were generally not. But everyday eating has changed a lot after a throng of operators leapt into the market and helped elevate it. For Robert Lehovich, leaving a career in finer dining and raising the stakes in the cafe culture has been life-altering, not just for him, but for his customers too. Robert, how are you? I'm very well, yourself? I'm good. What, you had a world in uh, fine dining for quite a while and now you're one of the leaders in the cafe sector. What was that transition like for you? Um, in the beginning, it was a little bit tough, to be honest, just because um, all I knew was was fine dining, both here in Australia and overseas. But um, it was something that I wanted to do. Um, I was quite you know, passionate about creating a more relaxed environment that people could still have the same style of food, quality food. Um, yeah, so it was it was difficult, but, you know, it was more so trying to find find itself because it wasn't very common at that stage when we're opening up. So, yeah, it was, it was a great transition. And I think, you know, it speaks volumes now. The, the skills that you obtained in, in that sort of finer dining restaurant world, have you, have you found them quite useful in this sense, um, trying to deliver that casual offering? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, when, when we were opening up, the, the cafe scene was starting to evolve and, you know, one thing we, you know, we call it a cafe, but it's really that, you know, bridge between restaurant and cafe um, and the way, you know, it's evolved now and, and, and the quality that you get, it's, it's, yeah, it's two worlds. Two worlds. Take it. Take us back to when you were young. I'd love to explore this fine dining sort of world that you that you lived in for for a period of your career. But what was what was food like for you as a kid growing up? So my family is of Polish heritage. Um, so mum was a great cook. Um, there's a funny story. My grandpa came from Poland after communism fell, and they were allowed to leave the country, and he stayed with us for a little while. And you know just watching him go to the markets and and buy a whole pig and you know take it home and break it down and make all those you know smoked sausages and blood puddings and you know smoking the sausages on a just on a household barbecue outside over the over the chimney of the bricks you know like stuff like that when you're when you're young kind of resonates and it and it and and you kind of look at that and go oh like that's that's where sausages come from. Like that's that's because <laughs> most people won't won't it doesn't resonate with them. They'll think, oh, you're bacon or or this product, and I think, where does you know where does that come from? Um, so you know, little things like that really ignited a little fire, I guess, for myself. Um, yeah, and then it kind of evolved from there. Do you have a story of of that experience, like the first time maybe you saw him break down a pig or make the sausages or something like that? Yeah, so the first time it happened, um, 
I was quite young and I had to I had to ask my mother this a few months ago. I was like, do you remember that story? You know, she said, yeah. Um, so basically they went to the markets, they got a pig and um, brought it back home and did what they had to do, break it down, the rest of it. And um, the neighbors were all kind of peeping over the fence going, like, what's going on? We got a few knocks on the door. They saw a man with a knife and blood everywhere. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but it wasn't common at that stage. And I don't think people... Um, and going back to that, where does the food come from kind of a thing that people don't realize that this is where it comes from and this is how it's prepared and it's just the natural thing. Like we've just forgotten that maybe over time. You, you mentioned your Polish heritage. How important is the pig in, in um, Polish culture in regards to food? Um, it's pretty It's pretty prominent. Um, you know, you get like it's – I'd say Polish food is kind of a mixture – between Middle Eastern, it's got a little bit of German influences. Um, so, you know, you've got your sauerkrauts and pork knuckles and that kind of stuff. And, you know, sausages, sausages were, I guess, a preservation method, you know, smoking and curing um, throughout winter. It's a lot of the Polish food comes from that kind of processing of being able to keep food throughout winter, you know, curing and salting and pickling and um, that's where it really evolved from. So, yeah, it is. it is, the pork would definitely be, a strong focus within Polish food and cuisine. Take us back to when you were young and you first sort of stepped into the industry. What was the lure like for, for, to, to join the industry? And, and do you have any stories of what it was like cutting your teeth? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think I always knew I wanted to be a chef. Um, when I kind of mentioned it to my mother, she's like, no, no, you know, like, you know, we, we need to go to uni. That's, that's what you do. It's just a very Polish thing to do, become an engineer or, you know, someone within mathematics or, you know, one of those fields. So I was a pretty good kid, still, um, still did quite well at school and I got into uni for engineering. But I just, I just said to my mom one day, you know, this is what I want to do. And I remember she looked at me and she said, well, if you're going to do it, you need to be the best. So <clears throat> I guess that's where, it, you know, for me, as I stepped into the kitchen, I was always with this focus of I need to learn as much as I can so that one day I can be, I can be great and do great things and, you know, really excel at this career for the rest of my life until I retire. Um, so I remember stepping, you know, uh, into my first kitchen, uh, one of my first major jobs I'd say kind of um, in a good restaurant would have been probably Bambini. It's still around today, Bambini Trust, yeah. Um, and I remember on the first day, at the end of the day, I was like buggered and I just thought to myself, oh, this is not like cooking at home. <laughs> this is very different, but, you know, it's it's one of those things you, you, you see a challenge and you want to overcome it and you get better at it and as you get better, you feel better about yourself. So, yeah, it was a really good – I had a really good experience. Were there any mentors in your younger years that sort of helped you create your own path in, in the industry? I think <clears throat> every job that I had, whether it be the venue or the person, I took away bits and pieces I think I could help me throughout my career. Um, you know, in Australia, like Tony Bilson, you could see he was so passionate about food. So he would come in and be constantly a discussion about some form of food, or he'd see something overseas in a magazine, or he'd do research or speak to a friend in France. And, and he was so passionate about it. It was, it was not about the dollars. It was not about the business. It was such a passion for food and everything else came second. Um, you know, and him and, and, Others as well, you know, overseas, um, Jean-Luc Rocher, who I worked for in a two-star, 
in France, which was my first job there in um, Poyac in Bordeaux. He he was a MOF, it's MOF, it's like a competition they have in France and he won that and his technique was just flawless. Like you could ask him anything on anything and he would know it. Um, and, you know, that, that pushed me a little bit. It's like you need to, to learn as much as you can and your techniques as well you need to be flawless by the time you get to a stage where you have people underneath you that are looking up to you. Um, yeah. Take us back to your time with Tony Bilson. He impacted so many of us over so many decades in different restaurants and in different ways and incredible influence on the Australian culinary landscape. Do you have any stories of sort of the impact he had on you? Um, yeah, like I remember, so I started there quite young. Um, I believe it was an apprentice when I started, or I just finished my apprenticeship and I actually finished off sous chef there which was a huge achievement for me. Um, and I think, you know, with him and the chefs, head chefs at the time, um, they just pushed you. And, you know, I, he would just come in with like 100 kilograms of truffles that he'd purchased and said, okay, we need to, we're going to get port and we're going to get brandy and we're going to boil it and then we're going to print the jars and then we're going to sell this to the public. And it was like a ridiculous place where we're not making money. And I just, you know, goes back to this thing of he – he was just so passionate about people learning and the customer being able to experience things that they normally wouldn't be able to experience. Um, and I think that resonates with me now, especially with my venues. It's, it's, you know, get the customer trying things that they normally wouldn't because there is a whole other world out there of ingredients and produce. When did you start to think about that transition of, of you know, taking your fine dining skills and, and pushing into the cafe area? Over my career, so I did fine dining basically my whole career um, in Australia. And then when I went to France, it was uh, an amazing experience. But the culture overseas, to be able to bring that back to Australia, I didn't think would work at the time. Um, you know, in, in France and, and London, uh, in the UK as well, where I worked, it's especially France, I'd say, it is really a career that you end with. It, you start and you end and you retire. You can be a chef. Um you know, there's hotels and palaces where you know, you've got brigades of still 30, 40 chefs working within one kitchen. And the goal is to create amazing food so that you can bring it in, bring customers into the hotels more so. Um, it's luring people in. It's, you know, they're not focused on food costs and labor costs. It's more so the prestige um, because they're making money off the hotels. It's to be able to bring that back here was at the time I thought, you know, I don't want to work for someone the rest of my career i want to be my own um you know my own boss and how do i create an environment where i'm not going to work myself to the bone for nothing but i can create something that's sustainable for years to come and potentially open more venues and being able to offer the customer still amazing produce and quality but in a really non-pretentious and relaxed environment um, which i think aussies are you know like the brunch scene in australia is amazing and you can go and have cocktails you know with your brunch and and great produce still but it's you know you still feel relaxed and you can still talk with your friends and you don't have to worry about not speaking too loudly it's it's really not stiff it's it's fun tell us about the early days and creating the menu is it is it much different to sort of what it is now i think in the beginning we're a little bit safer in the sense that you know for me i had to scale it back you know i wanted to do all these things that were really relating to fine dining but 
in a brunch scene, anyone that's in the industry within, you know, cafes, restaurants would understand that brunch is fast paced and you're doing not, you know, 50 covers, you can be doing 400, 500 covers in a day. So the real challenge was being able to adapt that style of food to the actual setting of a brunch setting. So over, you know, in the beginning, I think it was a little bit safer and over the years and even now, you know, we're evolving and changing a little bit more. And, you know, we started doing nights at our Bondo venue, um, which we opened, you know, roughly six months ago. So we do, yeah, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights and it's a completely different menu. And I think it's a great setting for, for people when they come and work with us because they're basically getting all services, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner and all the dishes are different. You're getting such a vast variety of food. Um, yeah, so definitely always evolving and changing. And I think you need to. I don't think you can stay stagnant. You know, you can't expect to do the same thing for, for 15 years and it's it's still going to be popular. Like times change, people change, and, and you know, the world's evolving. And tell us a bit about um, your approach with pork on the menu. Do you, do you lean into your heritage? And what's, what's, what's the approach that you take? I think I uh, would draw inspiration from everywhere um but definitely i draw a lot of inspiration from overseas when i worked in france um that was where i think i really learned uh the majority of my trade and not only that but the amount of dishes that i saw constantly because it wasn't you know i'd say one of the one particular venue which was um labe so the two star in paris um it was, I was a sous, sous chef there and, you know, your responsibility was not only to take care of the team, but also to come up with at least two new dishes a day. You're working five days, so that's 10 new dishes a week. And it wasn't, <clears throat> you know, you put it up and, oh, it kind of worked out. It was, you need to get it perfect. So if we need to redo it 15 times, we were going to redo it 15 times until it's perfect. So, and this is what I mean about budgets and, and you know, there was no real percentages it was more so about the food so i'd say a lot of my inspiration would would draw from that but even today yeah like i'll see something you know go to a relative's house and try something you take bits and pieces you're obviously not gonna i think in our venue it was always to think outside the box and and put a spin on things and maybe add an extra ingredient or an element that people have never tried before so i wouldn't say we're very traditional i'd say we we use a little bit more wacky or, you know, unknown ingredients to try and get people to try it. Um, yeah, so inspiration drawn from from everywhere, I'd say. There aren't many brunch or um, breakfast menu- menus in the country that don't have bacon on the menu. What, tell us a bit about bacon and the, and the program that you have there. <clears throat> so the bacon we use, we've actually been using for seven years or seven and a half years. It's the same one from Day Dot. Um, Lucas, so they're in Bronte. Uh, Lucas Meats. So, you know, bacon is probably one of the biggest or mostly used ingredients that we have in our venue. Um, we go through so much of it. And we actually did a tastings, you know, when we first opened, it was, and you can actually taste the quality. Like Lucas, you know, obviously use Australian. Um, they're local to us, especially in Bondi. Um, and we've done some great dishes over the years. We actually did one last year for um national baking day so we did a yeah we did like a little it's like it was meant to be a fancy uh egg and bacon roll so we used their bacon we did like a toasted cheese butter um there was a sour cherry 
and pepperberry relish that we made, melted camembert and fried eggs with a truffled mayo. Yeah, so we actually yeah saved some truffled from winter and we chopped them up and we made a mayonnaise with that. So yeah, it was pretty it was pretty cool. But that that that's what I mean. Like we try and you know, I think our job as chefs is to really use a good ingredient and and cater to that and make the the flavor stand out of that ingredient or showcase it the best we can. What makes great bacon from your perspective? Oh, you can just taste it. Like you, you can smell it. You can taste it. When you speak to the producer, you say, where do you source from? Um, you know, and when you scale back to, to where it actually comes from and you, you understand those people that actually, you know, um, <clears throat> producing those products, it's, it's like anything, you know, you taste good quality. You can taste it, the sweetness, the, the smell, the, the texture. Um, it's all there, the color, those kind of things. You, know, you can definitely, in my opinion, that, and that goes with anything, vegetables as well. You can pick up a vegetable and you know that it's, you know, if it's firm and, and it's got great color and you see those things. People, and people, people aren't stupid now. I think the customer, they know good quality. They, they, they see it and they're a lot smarter these days than they were in terms of being able to recognize that many years ago. A little earlier, you mentioned um, your grandfather and the influence of him breaking down a pig and some of the things that he made. You spent a lot of your career in, in France. Um, the pig is pretty vital to French cuisine as well. Are there any sort of dishes or techniques that you took from your time in France where the pig was sort of pivotal? Yeah, I think the one that <clears throat> resonates with me the most would be hunting season in France, um, especially with, with the wild boars uh, and pigs that they would kind of um, hunt. You basically, so I remember in in Bordeaux and in Paris, it was a very uh, big season where the hunters would come in and say, "Look, we can provide you this, this, and this." Or they'd come in on the day and say, "Look, we've got you know." four boars, four, four wild pigs or whatever it was on the day and um, you just select how many you want and it was a method of breaking it down. Basically, you'd have to remove all the hair, everything, the skin, then break it down and, and a really popular thing was to make terrines out of it, um, especially with the head and the trotters where you braise it down, you know, you pick off all the meat from the heads, um, all those little bits and pieces that normally get thrown away, you, you pick them out and it's time consuming. You have, you know, five chefs there just picking out meat. And then, you know, you use, you know, with foie gras and truffles, you'll make these terrines and you're using the gelatin from the stock that you make from the bones and set the terrines with that. Um, and it wasn't, it was just a labor of love. Like everyone will put up their hand to be able to do it. Um, but it was just this surreal experience of you actually see everything from start to, and, and, you know, start to finish. And it resonated with me just going back to that story of my grandfather. You mentioned that um, your Bondi venue is now doing uh, dinners a couple of nights a week, um, and the, the food is a little bit different at, at night. Um, tell us about how different the food is. Does it, do you approach uh, the menu differently with pork, for instance? Yeah, so the menu is more so a sharing style menu. Um, so you have smaller plates, mediums, and then to larges. Um, you know, and we have some beautiful, um, you know, prosciuttos and, and um, we use a truffled, um, similar to like a salami um, from a producer in Australia as well in um, Sydney, Pino's Meats. Um, so we use, yeah, they're great guys. 
they're, they're amazing people and their factory and, and everything, if you've ever walked through it, is is amazing. Um, and they're really adaptive as well. You know, we've asked in the past to be able to do up a few items and they actually make poly sausages as well for a few customers. <laughs> but yeah, you can kind of like just speak to the boys and say, you know, I want to create this and they've, they've done it before in the past. So yeah, we use a few of their products um, for the small starters and we just slice that fresh and it's a beautiful dish on its own. And, you know, and then we, you know, we constantly play around with you know, things for the larger plates and, you know, we'll definitely do some pork items, you know, to share in the future. We're always creating. I see one of my favorite dishes, uh, the pork cotoletta, is uh, features on the menu. Tell us, tell us how you approach that and what makes a great uh, cotoletta. Yeah, so we've done that cotoletta a few ways. The, we've done it in veal and also um, we've trialed it in pork as well. So I think it goes back to the uh, the product um, and just and just treating it with care. And, you know, that one there we do with tarragon and uh, shaved pecorino and a few, you know, we make our own fresh crumb and and just cooking it fresh and then just slicing it. It's just an amazing product. Um, yeah, there's some great products out that people need to start trying. I don't know if you've... You know, in London, when I was working, there's a product, um, Preza. It's basically from Iberico Pigs. And everyone over there just treats it like a steak. You sear it, and it just basically, you can serve it, it's still a little bit pink. Uh, I don't know if you know about the, obviously, the Iberico Pigs, they eat acorns, and, you know, they live a good life, and I think the product, kind of, you can taste it through that. It- you made a name for yourself with the Cronulla um, store, and as you mentioned, you you opened Bondi more recently. Um, what's changed for you in running two venues now? Uh, do you treat them differently? Do they require a different menu for a different audience? So, change for me is definitely, and I think this is for any chef that becomes an owner. It's a very different mindset that you have to have. You can't, um, you can't be completely you can't completely have tunnel vision in what you do you know you are an owner and i think people depend on you You need to really step back and look things from outside the box you can't be stuck on one little task um so what i you know my role really is to monitor the business and 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 uh, menu creation um and getting the other staff involved as well to be able to do that but in terms of the two venues the the daytime menu is quite similar i'd say there's a few variances which we're trying you know create unique dishes for the specific venue so customers feel as though it's their own and you know whenever we do open up a venue and we'll continue to open up the venues within areas we want those customers to feel as though that venue is theirs it's not you know these guys are opening up from this area it's we're opening here these dishes are a few we listen to what you want as a customer within the area and we'll create those items around that so we're very adaptive. It's not like we need to keep a menu the same for years. You know, we, we do specials constantly, almost every single week for day and night. Um, and yeah, it's, it's like I said, they're, they're both great venues in their own right. You're quite well traveled. How, how do you see uh, Australia's cafe culture compared to that around the world? The best in the world. <laughs> by far. Well, it, it's, it's, it's just, in, you know, I think, we're quite active. We're early risers. We we're very get up and go. Like a lot of us, you know, young people overseas in Europe. It's not. It is. It is more common now, but it's not very common to be able to have a business at, you know, in your early twenties. And and people are up. They're active. They want to do their meetings. I think the brunch culture is big in Australia compared to anywhere else. You know, brunch. 
you know, you go to France and, and for breakfast, you know, it was just a coffee, a coffee, a croissant and a cigarette. Like <laughs> that's brekkie over there. It wasn't, you know, unless you're doing a champagne breakfast on the weekends in a hotel in Paris or, you know, a nice setting. It's, it's not a common thing. And, and I think it's beautiful in Australia that we get to, to do that, you know, going on for the weekend and, and having a few Bloody Marys or mimosas and margaritas, you know, for your brunch with some mates is like, that's so great to be able to do that. As, as an operator with two successful cafes, what, what makes a great cafe and what, what, what does it take to make it successful? Oh, passion. Like, especially now, the industry has been flipped upside down with everything that's happened with COVID and, and staff shortages and stock going up. If you're not resilient and you don't have the passion for it, you're not going to succeed because it's going to be too hard. And in those tough times, you need to think, why am I doing this? I'm going to push through um, because like with anything, if you don't love it, you're always going to, you're not going to strive as much it's a baby for me like for me it's a it's a baby that i need to nurture and it needs to grow and one day you know it'll take care of me but i need to grow it and i need to love it and even through tough times you need to you just need to nurture it well you've built something quite special what, what do you love about what you do oh uh, I, I go to work like i go to work now and i just love it it's being an owner is definitely a different, um, it's a different beast. You know, there's times where it's amazing, there's times where it's tough, but to be able to set your own time frame around your life and what you do with work is is great. Um, I wouldn't change it now. I wouldn't be able to go back. I love, I love what I do. Well, Robert, it's an absolute honor to have you on uh, The Crackling today to hear just a bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Awesome, really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.